1: We're joined this portion of our program by um, a guest who I've had the pleasure of speaking with before, a lively discussion we had with him at that time. We were talking about a book that he had put together entitled Satchel. Um, Now he is out with a book entitled Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Larry Tai is joining us on our program. He's been an award-winning journalist at the Boston Globe and a Nieman Fellow at Harvard University. He now runs a Boston-based training program for medical journalists. Uh, He is the author, as I mentioned, of the New York Times bestseller, Satchel, as well as Superman, The Father of Spin, Homelands, and Rising from the Rails, co-author with Kitty Dukakis of Shock. He joins us by phone on our program. Larry, it's nice to talk with you again. Good morning.
2: Great to be on with you.
1: Um, I say that name, Bobby Kennedy. What's the first thing that comes to your mind?
2: Liberal icon, a guy who even half a century after his tragic death, the Kennedy name itself, and especially Bobby's name, became a cliche for the great liberal pantheon in American history, and yet that is only half the story of who he was, and maybe not the most interesting half.
1: What intrigued you and prompted you, to do this book, to do this story?
2: Two things. One is having grown up in Massachusetts, infused with everything Kennedy, I was totally taken by the family, generally, and by the member of that family who I think is the least understood, the most provocative, and possibly the most interesting, who is Bobby. But if that was half of it, the other half was having had a sense that there was an untold story about him, that in fact, rather than starting out as the liberal icon he became at the end, he started out as his father's son and as a cold warrior, communist-fearing conservative. And that made where he ended up to me even more interesting.
1: Well, is it your belief then that we kind of have to rethink our image of him?
2: absolutely have to rethink our image of him and anytime you're writing a biography about anybody you're using their relatively small life story as a lens into bigger and more compelling issues and i think we have to rethink who bobby kennedy was but we also can see him as a lens into how america itself was changing from the conservative era of eisenhower in the 1950s to the era of tumult and change in the 1960s. And Bobby was partly a reflection of that change, and he was partly a cutting-edge leader in trying to steer that change.
1: What would you say if somebody said, well, if we were looking at this in today's lexicon, he could be referred to as a flip-flopper because of the change?
2: So I think that that's a serious concern. And I think that in today's lexicon, we tend to be cynical about politicians and think that if they change, it's because that's where the political winds are blowing. Bobby's change in the research that I did on him seems much more heartfelt and seems to defy this whole notion of flip-flopping. And it also defies the notion that he was going with the political winds, because many of his changes were going in exactly the opposite direction. At a time when Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan in the 1960s were reacting to all the change going on in America by trying to take us in a more conservative direction and did take us there. Bobby Kennedy was defying those trends and trying to steer the change using his conservative roots but also his liberal, um, new liberal reflections. And he was, I think, on the verge of becoming the tough liberal or the tender conservative that many people have spent the last fifty years pining for,
1: was he a harbinger of the change that was happening
2: he was he was a harbinger of it, and had he lived, so we can go through a million what ifs when somebody dies tragically like Bobby Kennedy did, but he died on the cusp of his biggest political victory, which was in the California presidential primary. the next day, he was planning to go to Chicago where Mayor Richard Daly's son tells me that his father was planning to endorse Bobby. And I think the party establishment would have rallied around him. And I think that if anybody in America knew Richard Nixon's vulnerabilities, it was the guy, Bobby Kennedy, who had beat Nixon when he was running his brother Jack's campaign eight years before. So, again, we can all speculate, but my what-if would have us believe that Bobby Kennedy would have been president and would have taken America in a very different direction. And in terms of what's going on in America today, with the extraordinary racial strife that we're seeing in the the recent past in everywhere from Baton Rouge and St. Paul to Dallas, I think Bobby would have addressed some of those issues 50 years ago in a way that might have made them less of a recurring theme 50 years later today.
1: The fact that so many of us grew up in an era where America was basically obsessed with the Kennedys, and some might even argue still is today, is that a difficult thing for those who are younger than us to comprehend?
2: It's difficult because those who are younger than us often don't know much about that history they don't understand the fascination with the kennedys and they don't understand the extraordinary hope so we don't have much today um, in the way of hope from our political world uh, today's candidates running for president start out with unfavorability ratings that are unprecedented and it's tough to imagine back to a time when leaders and when incredibly young leaders, Bobby Kennedy, when he died, was just 42 years old. And the idea that there was a generation coming along that was offering this kind of promise from the part of the political establishment is tough to conceive of. And yet I think it's really important, especially today, and especially when somebody like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama would say that Bobby Kennedy was the closest thing to political mentors that they had. um, I think it's really important to understand what he represented and how parts of his message continue to resonate.
1: Where were you when he was killed?
2: I was 13 years old. I was probably on my way to school, and I was devastated. It was within a period from 1963 to 1968, we had lost our three most promising leaders, Jack Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and in between Martin Luther King. And there was, if you can remember back to that, this sense that we had been robbed of the sense of hope. It was bad enough to lose Jack, but we had Martin Luther King and Bobby. And then when King went, even the the most prominent civil rights leaders in America were saying, thank God we at least have Bobby left. And he was in 1968 trying to put together a coalition that was unprecedented of blacks, Hispanics, blue-collar whites that we would later call Reagan Democrats, Native Americans, the dispossessed, the young and old, the poor and even the rich in a way that we've sort of given up bringing them together. We presume today that America is a a land equally divided, and the only question is who's going to get that 1% or 2% to shift it one way or the other. And back then there was a sense that maybe we could bring people together around common purposes.
1: Bobby Kennedy's widow, Ethel, consented to talk to you. Um, What was that like?
2: So I would like to tell you, first of all, in in 50 years since her husband died, she hasn't talked publicly about him. And I would like to tell you that it's because I'm charming and convincing and I sort of wooed her into talking to me. I think what happened with her and with lots of the people who I talked to, and I talked to about 400 people, I, would, I think that what was going on is that those people were sensing their own mortality. A, Ethel just turned 88, and I think she decided it was me or nobody. And what it was like was, to me, it opened up an entire new set of possibilities in understanding Bobby. It was less that she was loquacious and eloquent than that she let me test every theory I had about her husband, and nobody knew him better personally and in terms of his public life and Ethel. So just one example, if I can take a second, in terms of something that Ethel helped me understand. Bobby Kennedy's first real job after he graduated from law school was working for seven and a half months for Senator Joe McCarthy, the famous red-baiting, table-thumping Senator from Wisconsin. And lots of people who are part of the sort of Kennedy myth-making machine, have tried to write that off as an asterisk, saying that that was an aberration, it was short, it didn't mean anything. And that will help me understand that Bobby and Joe McCarthy were buddies, that he was, that McCarthy, when he got away from his table-thumping Senate hearing room, could be a very charming guy. And Bobby Kennedy went to work for him and saw him during that time as his mentor. Bobby was an anti-communist, He saw McCarthy as the one guy in America who was standing up effectively against the communists. He failed to see in those early years something he saw clearly in his later years, which was all of McCarthy's victims, that he went much too far. And when you look back at that McCarthy era, the best hearings that McCarthy ever held, the ones that were least um, rabble-rousing, were the hearings that Bobby Kennedy held on why our allies, while we were at war against the communists in Korea, why our allies were trading with the communists and even shipping their troops around. So Bobby Kennedy was a McCarthyite, but he was the best of them. And Ethel helped me see that and lots of other things that people have denied or tried to obfuscate about her husband.
1: The guest who has joined us on our program uh, this Sunday morning, the first hour of our program, is Larry Tai. Larry is a veteran reporter with the Boston Globe, worked there for many years. He is joining us, talking with us about um, the book, Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. We talked with him when the book came out in hardcover. It's actually coming out in paperback uh, this week, and uh, Larry is joining us in this hour of our program to share some thoughts about Bobby Kennedy and his legacy, and also, in a way, kind of relating some of Bobby Kennedy's legacy to events of today. We'll continue in this discussion. He's with us for our entire hour this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Thank you so much for joining us on our program here in our six o'clock hour. We move into um, the second portion of our chat with Larry Tai. Uh, Larry is um, somebody who's been a veteran journalist, he's a reporter for a long time with Boston Globe. Uh, He has authored a book entitled Bobby Kennedy The Making of a Liberal Icon. We talked with him when the book came out in hardcover. It's now coming out in paperback uh, this week. And, you know, one of the things that when we talk about Bobby Kennedy and his legacy, literally we have to also touch upon the battles, Larry, that he had with the Teamsters Union.
2: So probably one of the defining battles in America of the 1950s was the big government versus the allegedly corrupt big union battle and nobody personified that like Bobby Kennedy and his archenemy Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters. And that was a battle, if you were Hoffa, you would say that was a battle of the government trying to control the unions, trying to undermine the unions on behalf of big business. If you were Bobby Kennedy, it was a battle to try to save unions by getting rid of allegedly corrupt leaders like Jimmy Hoffa. And these were two of the most tenacious people ever in the Washington scene. Young Senate staffer Bobby Kennedy, who was feeling the height of his power in terms of being able to go after guys like Hoffa, and Jimmy Hoffa, who was running the biggest, most powerful union in America that could literally stop America in its tracks. They controlled trucking. They controlled the commerce of America. And these two guys went head to head. And initially, it looked like Hoffa had won and in the end, Jimmy Hoffa went to jail when Bobby Kennedy became Attorney General.
1: Now, the relationship between Bobby Kennedy and Jack Kennedy, President Kennedy, our 35th president, what was that like really?
2: So there is today a cliché where people talk about them when they're forming a presidential ticket. They talk about the idea of a co-presidency, of having a vice president or somebody else in the senior administration who is so powerful and so important to the president that they become almost like a co-president. The closest thing America ever saw to a true co-presidency was when Jack and Bobby Kennedy were serving together. Bobby was Jack's attorney general. But at different times in that administration, he was the pseudo-CIA director. He had more influence at times on things like how to respond to the Cuban Missile Crisis than the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State did. He was his brother's lieutenant. He was his consigliere. He was his alter ego. They would, as Ethel described it to me, They would not just finish one another's sentences, but at times they didn't even have to say anything because they instinctively, by body language and just by knowing one another, they knew what the other one was about to say. And while Jack was a very strong guy and Bobby was clearly his younger brother, during the critical moments, whether it was civil rights or Cuba or how to deal with the Russians, during the critical moments when Jack needed somebody who he knew had only his best interests at heart politically and personally it was bobby he always turned to and that was a really extraordinary moment and it was generally for bobby an incredibly positive thing until that day in november 1963 where in one one motion with a crazy assassin bobby lost his best friend his boss and his sense of purpose in the world when jack was killed
1: and realistically How did that change him?
2: It changed him the the first month after the assassination. Bobby was the nation's Mm mourner-in-chief. He was the one who helped rally Jackie and the kids to deal with the loss of their husband-slash-father. He was the one who helped the country with the transition to Lyndon Johnson and legitimized Lyndon Johnson. He was the one who held it together. A month into things, when the country was pulling it together and when even Jackie was, Bobby lost it. He had what we would today describe as clinical depression that lasted for months. He was, he was um, unable to focus. He would go for long rides in his car in the middle of the night. He was just generally without a sense of purpose. He had His whole notion of what he would do in the world, his, his present and his future, were shattered. He thought about giving it all up. He thought about going and traveling across the world with his family. He thought about teaching. He speculated on lots of things, but the truth was this is a guy who was devoted to public service and public policy. And about eight months after his brother died, he ended up running for senator in New York and giving himself a new sense of purpose. But he was a very different guy then. He was always a balance between the tender and the tough. But the tender started predominating after he felt this sense of vulnerability with Jack's loss. He started reading Greek tragedy. He started having a sense in the world that the power and the hubris of the Kennedys could be shattered again by an assassin's bullet. And it was a very different and, I think, a better Bobby Kennedy that ultimately emerged from Jack's death.
1: And in terms of how it is that they related, did... Bobby Kennedy cover up dalliances by President Kennedy?
2: He covered up lots of things by President Kennedy, and he'd been doing that for years. He covered up the fact that Jack had a very, very serious condition, um, an adrenal condition called Addison's disease. He covered up, and may have even enabled, but definitely covered up, um, the He didn't want that to destroy his brother and to destroy the presidency. Um, He worked with the press as one of the most effective spendmeisters ever. I think Bobby Kennedy, in many ways, was the father of modern campaigns in the best and worst sense, the best sense in terms of doing a kind of organizing district by district that is a winning combination and that was seldom done and, in the worst sense, the kind of hardball campaigning that we now take for granted. You didn't want to mess with Bobby Kennedy. When, when Richard Nixon, the most famous political debate, televised political debate, and the first one, probably in American history, was Jack Kennedy against Richard Nixon. And when Nixon came by and jokingly asked Bobby how he looked before that debate, when Nixon famously looked like he had a five o'clock shadow and looked miserable, Bobby said, you look great. And I don't know, I don't think I can say on the radio what he said to Jack just before he went on air, but it was, <laughs> kick him somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you talk about um, this relationship and talk about Bobby Kennedy and his passion with the civil rights movement, it wasn't always that way, was it?
2: It wasn't always that way with most issues, and let's take civil rights for a second. Bobby Kennedy started out not quite clueless, but pretty close to it. He had His natural instinct was to be empathetic with the plight of blacks and others who were oppressed in America, but he also, as attorney general, was more concerned with protecting his brother. So he suggested to the civil rights folks that they slow things down, that they not embarrass Jack when he was going to Russia to have a... Um, a, a meeting with Nikita Khrushchev that he not embarrass that they not embarrass the country and push too hard he had after all while he depended on black support to get his brother elected he depended also on the support of democrats in the south who were arch segregationists and he wanted things to proceed in a legalistic slow way it was only after riots in birmingham in montgomery and most famously at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi in Oxford, that Bobby Kennedy saw that his go slow approach and put federal troops in only after the violence had started, that that was not the way you were going to appease segregationists, that they were not going to be appeased at all, and that he had to take a tougher stand and be as hard-edged as they were. And by the end of his time as attorney general, he was one of the best friends blacks had, At the beginning it wasn't that way and by the time he died i think i can say without being contradicted that bobby kennedy was the most popular white man in black america
1: i'd be remiss also if i did not ask you about the warren commission investigation of president kennedy's assassination did bobby kennedy believe there was a conspiracy
2: so I think he believed something went on that wasn't addressed by the Warren Commission, and it was something more than what happened with Lee Harvey Oswald. He was one of the few people close to the situation who was never interviewed by the Warren Commission because he didn't want to be. He always said publicly that he agreed with what they had concluded, and I think privately, based on... Things that had been written based on people that I talked to, I think privately two things were going on. One is he realized that it would take his being president to truly open up all of these dark questions and find an answer, and that that was when he planned to do it. The other thing I believe is that he felt a lot of guilt. He wasn't sure with we- whether what he did in going after Fidel Castro, in going after the mob, in going after Jimmy Hoffa, had somehow backfired and ended up in his brothers being killed. Bobby always assumed that if anybody was assassinated, it would be him, not Jack. And I think that to his last days, he had some sense of nagging guilt that he had somehow played a role in that.
1: We're talking with Larry Tai on our program and talking with him about Bobby Kennedy, the making of a liberal icon, uh, his new book. Um, He's kind enough to be joining us by phone. Bobby Kennedy's visit to a sharecropper's shack in the Mississippi Delta, what was that like?
2: So I hate to use the word epiphany, but if there were ever epiphany moments, or maybe even a better way to say it, if there were ever moments that we can look back and say that was a defining moment of who he was becoming, it was that moment at the sharecropper's shack. And let me give you a little background on that. So a bunch of senators in Washington hear testimony that there are americans who are actually starving and one of the places that it was said that this was going on was in mississippi so these senators go down to jackson mississippi and hold a great public hearing they hear about hunger and starvation they hear that there are people in mississippi who actually have zero income and therefore can't even afford the nominal fee that was charged then for food stamps and most of the senators do what senators always do they hear that stuff they maybe take it to heart and then they go home to their plush life in washington bobby kennedy and one other senator decided to stick around and bobby said i want you to show me what you've been telling us about so they go to the breadbasket one of the breadbaskets of america the mississippi delta they are shown around a bunch of shacks where poor people are living these people The the children's stomachs are bloated in a way that suggests malnutrition. There are 15 people living in a tiny shack, um, and they visit especially one family. And that family, Bobby thinks he's alone in this visit, thinks there are no reporters who are actually nearby in the house with him and can see what he's doing. And he gets down on the floor. There's a young black toddler on the floor Um, just playing with his little scraps of food there, cornmeal and other things on the floor. And Bobby gets down on the floor, um, a dirty, um, uh, dirt floor with flies swarming around, and he tries to make contact with this young child. And he spends 15 minutes there in a scene that, to me, says who Bobby Kennedy is. There are not many people, there may be nobody else in the U.S. Senate then who would not just go visit the shack, but in his fancy suit would get down on a dirt floor and spend 15 minutes trying to make contact with a child it was impossible to make contact with. And if anybody were watching that, they would not have just noticed the flies swarming overhead. They would have noticed the tears coming down Bobby's face. And this is who Bobby Kennedy was. He related to kids, at their eye level. He related to people, in addition to sort of all of his public grandstanding stuff, he related on an incredibly human, empathetic level. And this is the guy, if Jack Kennedy was sort of Pope-like, Bobby Kennedy was a parish priest who could truly relate to people, he came away from that experience in the Mississippi Delta, went back to Washington, and did two things. First, the day, the Sunday afternoon he got back, he was in his estate in suburban Washington in McLean, Virginia, and he told his kids, who were sitting in this enormous dining room with fancy chandeliers, he said, this is what's going on in Mississippi, and it's not something abstract. It is something that I want all of you in your lives to do something to help make America a better place. And it's something I was with a couple nights ago, his eldest child. And 50 years later, that message continues to resonate with his family, and they've all taken it very seriously and tried to do something. The other thing that he did is on Monday he went to visit the Secretary of Agriculture, and he got him to promise that if he could prove that there were people in America with zero income, that the Secretary would change the rules for food stamps and make it available to people who had nothing to give in return, Bobby proved it to the secretary. The secretary changed the rules, and people, there were fewer people starving in America thanks to Bobby Kennedy's trip.
1: After Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy may have given his best speech ever. I'd like your thoughts on that.
2: So what happened was Bobby was campaigning for president in 1968 in Indiana. He arrives by plane in Indianapolis, and hears that Martin Luther King has been shot and killed, and he was due that night to give a speech in the middle of the black ghetto in Indianapolis. The then mayor of Indianapolis, a guy who went on to become a U.S. senator named Richard Lugar, says, you will not go into the ghetto. It's not safe for you, and your being there could cause a riot. Bobby Kennedy says, thanks for the advice, but I'm going. He heads into the ghetto, he tosses away the speech that his aides had written for him, and he delivers for the first time in his life an impassioned discussion of how he felt when his brother Jack was killed. He's telling many people, this nearly all-black audience, he's telling many of them for the first time that Martin King has been killed, and yet his empathy for them and their empathy for him in terms of what he had gone through with his brother created this extraordinary bond that night and the evidence of it you don't trust me on the fact that he made a difference you look at the fact that more than a hundred cities in America had race riots the night of Martin Luther King's death and Indianapolis was not one of them and I think it was because of what Bobby Kennedy did that night in appealing to people for calm and for compassion and for figuring out where we go in a reasoned way after this. And I would say just one last editorial point is we could sure use some of that sense of direction
1: today. Bobby Kennedy, the making of a liberal icon, Larry Ty, the author, talking with us on our program. Larry, as always, wonderful discussion. Thank you very much. Certainly good luck with the book. Thank you very much.
2: Could you lower those signs, please?
3: I have some very sad news for all of you and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. (laughs) Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort as Martin Luther King did to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand and compassion and love for those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, my my favorite poet was Aeschylus. He once wrote, Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division, What we need in the United States is not hatred, what we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another, feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past, but we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness, and it's not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black people in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. With... (laughs) And what dedicate ourselves to what the Greeks wrote so many years ago, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much.
1: Sunday morning on WFAN. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program, and Ed Randall will be talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update on WFAN. We should have a very good discussion this hour of our program. As I alluded to earlier, we're going to be talking in a broad sense about the term Anabolic steroids. And joining us in the discussion is a very good guest. Don Hooten is joining us on our program. Uh, Don, I'm pleased to say, is the founder and executive chair of the Taylor Hooten Foundation. Uh, he is um, going to share some information with us. There was a very important event that occurred recently in um, the nation's capital area that we'll talk about, too. Uh, First of all, Don, good morning. Welcome to our program here on The Fan. Good morning, Bob. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. I know it's um, early. I believe you're joining us from the state of uh, Texas. Um, I guess in beginning the discussion, you know, I, I say that term, anabolic steroids, and most people have a reaction when you begin talking about the topic these days, how has the reaction that you get changed
4: well the, the, in in the early days when we first got involved and, 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 and lost my boy Taylor uh, died from using these drugs that was in the you know, early 2000s mm-hmm. the most most common reaction was a visceral reaction uh, people thinking about uh, anabolic steroids uh, being used in sports like baseball were so common at the time and it was a, a reaction of cheating i'm sad to say that uh, i don 't know whether one of my colleagues calls it steroid fatigue you know the, the that discussion uh, is has gotten stale there, you know for, for a couple of things have happened first baseball's you know, pretty much cleaned up their act uh, with with regard to that. But we're trying to shift the discussion, Bob, and doing our best out here to one of health and wellness and, and, and safety of our kids and away from... Uh, this being about cheating in sports, I mean it still is, and we're occasionally getting the guys that that, that get popped for, for for using these drugs. But uh, but mostly, what we've got now is a group of young people, uh, not just kids, but young adults that are that are using these drugs to look better and working out in the gym. It's sadly uh, the, the the primary uh, the, the primary harm being done from these dr- uh, drugs now is not about ruining a sport.
1: So it's not just the performance enhancing aspect, it's people using the drugs, as you say, to, to look better.
4: Right, what, uh, what what the social scientists tell us is that you know, when, when uh, steroids were big coming out of professional and elite sports, uh, uh, this stuff filtered down through the colleges and into the high school locker rooms And when the boys got out in the hallways uh, or or into a social environment, the other guys in school began to recognize that the the pretty ladies uh, gravitated uh, towards these guys because they they look good, they're healthy, they're they're all pumped up. And uh, the other guys in school began to figure out, well, if that's what it's going to take to attract to the pretty ladies, then I'm going to do it too. Mm -hmm. And one of the numbers that uh, was revealed in our conference last week in Washington, Dr. Harrison Pope from Harvard shared with us that his estimate is now that 80% of of people that are actively using anabolic steroids aren't in athletics at all. They're using this stuff to look better. And therein lies a scary, scary situation.
1: You know if, well then how do you how do you combat something like that i mean that's those are frightening numbers
4: bob that if, if you know when 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 we figure out maybe somebody listening now can help <laughs> us figure that out because this is a tough challenge. Let me kind of uh go sideways on us for a second and talk about the girls, everybody listening to us virtually everybody. Is familiar with the terms anorexia and bulimia, right. and will will uh, recognize that that is how girls, uh, young females, respond to an obsessive uh, desire to get their body image where where they where they mistakenly want it to be. Well, we're seeing that same phenomena with our young guys now. That the the term has been coined bigorexia. And it has to do with uh, the male's desire to, you know, they look in the mirror and see themselves being uh, smaller than they really are, and they're just going to drastic lengths to change that. And, uh, you know, as difficult a time as the, you know, social scientists have had and and, and trying to get a handle on the girls using, you know, using things like bulimia and anorexia to, to, to 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 deal with their obsessive body image, I'm afraid that we're moving into a category with the young boys that's, that's, that's every bit as serious and is going to be every bit as difficult a challenge to tackle. Mm.
1: All right. In this discussion, as you mentioned, you lost your son, Taylor, uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, tell us about him.
4: Oh Taylor was the youngest of, of three children, a fine young man. He was carrying a three point eight grade average in school and very active in the Baptist church, uh, just a, a a real nice young kid. And Taylor was a baseball player, high school baseball player, and you know, not only wanted to be the uh you know pitcher on uh, the varsity baseball squad at Plano West Senior High School he wanted to be the starting pitcher and uh wanted to get bigger His coach told him he needed to get bigger still hadn't figured out why he needs to get bigger to to throw a fastball but that <laughs> was you know that was the comment that the coach made and Taylor, unbeknownst to the coach, uh, began to use anabolic steroids to help him achieve his objective of getting bigger, just like half of the boys on his high school baseball team were already doing. And Bob, he, he He used anabolic steroids, the real stuff, uh, for about seven months before he wound up committing suicide. And uh, the doctors, uh, the the real medical experts have reviewed Taylor's case and are virtually unanimous in their assessment that uh, the depression he was experiencing was a direct result of uh, the anabolic steroids that he'd been using.
1: Is that something that's... Is a, shall I use this, dare I use this term, common Well,
4: the, the, Well, let's, let's understand what anabolic steroids are, and I think the answer is going to be yes, not the suicide necessarily, right. but the depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, anabolic steroids are quite simply various forms of synthetic testosterone. Uh, and every male... <laughs> Or mom listening to us right now will recognize. You know the guys are going to remember when they were in high school and their bodies were changing and the testosterone was going through the body that uh, in, in, in tremendous levels. You, you get mood swings. I mean, you, you think of a young kid that you know one minute he's in a great mood and the next minute he's raunchy. You can't and, and mom can't figure out why in the heck Junior, uh, had, you know what, what happened to this kid. And, and we all know what's. Happened. Happening to these kids is hormones are changing in their body. Well, if you begin injecting yourself with uh, heavy doses of, uh, of artificial testosterone, first the human body stops producing its own testosterone virtually immediately. But the mood swings that I just described that everybody listening to us will recognize or be familiar with, those mood swings accelerate. They get stronger and stronger on the aggressive side of those mood swings we've even got a phrase or a term we've coined for it it's called roid rage well roid rage is very very real and what it is is just an aggressive uh, mood swing that results from the use of anabolic steroids But sadly, on the opposite side uh, of that that, that mood swing is depression, and depression, to answer your question, is quite common. Uh, According to a study that was done by Harvard, the the results were published about two years ago, 29% of the users of anabolic steroids will experience severe depression, not just plain old depression, but really serious depression. And as we learned in Taylor's case, thank goodness it's not very, very common, but in some of those cases, uh, that depression can be serious enough uh, to result in suicide. And that was our introduction to the world of anabolic steroids.
1: What a terrible thing to have to experience. I mean, how did your family hold it
4: together? Uh, Faith uh, is at the core of of, of what held our family together through all that. I'm glad you asked, Bob. And we, you know, the way we dealt with it was by understanding that uh, our challenge as parents, or excuse me, our charter as parents was to reach out and talk about our experience with Taylor. You know, sadly, uh, uh, there isn't, or hasn't been much discussion about the world of steroid use by our kids. Uh, it's, 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 happening on a very, very wide basis, and we've been able, uh, and that's been part of our healing, uh, to deal with our loss of Taylor by talking literally to tens of thousands of other parents and kids across the country, uh, hoping that uh, to, to raise awareness and hopefully save the life of some other young people. I, I wish somebody had talked to us before uh, uh, We went down the path we did with Taylor.
1: We are in an interesting discussion with Don Hooten on our program. It's um, on the topic of anabolic steroids. Uh, Don is joining us, as I mentioned. He's the founder and executive chair of the Taylor Hooten Foundation. After our eight o'clock update, it is Rick Wolf, who's along with the Sports Edge program, and Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our nine o'clock update on WFAN. The Taylor Hooten Foundation, uh, first of all, on the web, what's the uh, resource for that?
4: resource for Taylor Hooten Foundation is taylorhooton.org with all o's h o o t o n taylorhooton.org.
1: And what sort of things can people find there? How can they be helpful?
4: <laughs> well, the, the lots of information, uh, more information probably than, <laughs> than 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 you can use <laughs> on uh, on per- performance enhancing drugs like anabolic steroids, but it's a great resource. We find a we, we, we're kind of pleasantly surprised to learn teachers from across the country, uh, teachers of young people, use it as a as a resource to find out what's going on. We've got the latest news that we always keep up on, you know, the latest athlete uh, that's uh, been been popped using uh, things like anabolic steroids, or the latest medical maladies that have occurred as a result of these drugs. Just a very interesting site, and I think your your listeners will uh, will enjoy stopping by.
1: When we talk about the availability, accessibility of anabolic steroids today, um, how easy is it to get them? Bob, that's,
4: that's one of the saddest parts of the story here. Uh, for uh, your, your, your listener that's, that's sitting in front of a computer right now, just type in the words, uh, buy steroids online, as in purchase, B-U-Y, buy steroids online, and depending on the search engine, uh, probably get two to four million hits pop up. Uh, now, not every one of those sites uh, are, are or, or where somebody can purchase anabolic steroids, but if you'll spend no more than five minutes, I will challenge you. Five minutes, you will find multiple places where not only you, but your children can order real anabolic steroids uh... with a credit card or money order Now, most of these sites appear to be a north american site some of them are uh... but behind the scenes on most of those sites a lot of those sites are in asia and uh... primarily china uh, where the raw materials are developed and these uh, steroids are uh, you know, readily available to the kids. And if, it, 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 it's crazy how easy it is for these kids to get their hands on this stuff. But if that's too much trouble, all they have got to do is go to the local gymnasium, anywhere where the big guys work out. And I know everybody that's been in, a, in, in one of the big gyms will... Uh, Recognize the section in the gym I described where you've got the big guys in their muscle shirts working out with the free weights, watching themselves in the mirror, and I'm not suggesting all of those guys are steroid users by any stretch of the imagination, but if the kids go wandering through that section of the gym and get to visiting with those guys uh, – It's typically very easy, almost universal, that somebody in that gym is going to be able to provide them with a supply of steroids. Taylor uh, met his dealer at our local YMCA. And, you know, when I talked to moms, I asked them, what safer place can you imagine uh, to send your youngster to work out than, than the Y? And uh, that's where, you know, Taylor was working out, and there's where he met his 19-year-old uh, drug dealer that uh, sold him the anabolic steroids that wound up taking his life.
1: Wow. Wow. By the way, Don, as you were talking, I did the online search one million eight hundred ten thousand results on buy anabolic steroids online. Just with that simple simple search, as you were saying, that
4: yeah, and if you, it's and, pretty and, scary. And, isn't and it,
1: Bob? It, well, it's even more scary as I'm also I've been scanning through some of these sites uh, too. I mean, potentially this can can be from anywhere, you know. Um, and, yeah, it's it's very, very frightening when you stop and think about it. Um, and the availability, accessibility of this is just completely out of control. I mean, basically, we're talking about something that is a crisis. I know you had this forum um, in the Washington, D.C. area. How did this come about? What did you cover?
4: Well, we've been... That's a good. Let me let me take take a couple of steps back, and then I'll build up to this forum. Uh, we've been uh, deeply involved in this battle uh, against uh, steroid use by our children, uh, by our kids. Uh, since the early 2000s, and, and lots of progress has been made—not enough, but lots of big progress has been made in a number of areas. Uh, you know, we're all familiar with the, the, the tough tightening of restrictions and testing, and things like baseball and other sports. Uh, we've t- you know, got a pretty good handle on the use at the professional level, but you know, we've been educating kids. Uh, just our little organization has talked to well over a million, well over a million kids across the country. It's just a whole lot of stuff that we could go to that we've accomplished. But one area where there's been no progress has been with the medical community. Uh, I'm sad to report to you that – if you walked into a doctor's office today uh, with with symptoms similar to what we were seeing with Taylor, there are no medical protocols that have been developed to treat a user of anabolic steroids uh, that are either suffering the consequences or trying to come off of these drugs. So we've been working for the past couple of years with a group of world class doctors from Harvard and Mount Sinai Univers- uh, Mount Sinai Hospital, you know, other docks across the country, and trying to raise awareness within the medical community about the scope of the problem. And uh, the kind of the culmination of all of that work was a forum that we put together in Washington, uh, D.C., in conjunction with the uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse, the American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of Sports Medicine, and others, Uh, the purpose of which was to raise awareness about the scope of the problem and begin to define um the, the The research that needs to be done amongst the scientists to understand this problem and and be able to, uh, to identify uh, uh, and treat these users of the drugs well part of that was was getting the latest handle on the scope of the problem. Just how big is it? And I think everybody at our conference, at our forum, came away understanding that this is an epidemic that's happening. If we look at our kids, the latest numbers, Bob, are that 7% of our children, our high school kids, admit to using anabolic steroids. Now, 7%. That's 7% of boys, 7% of girls. That's athletes and non athletes. That's. You know, here in Texas, a typical high school is 2,000 kids. Let's just do the math. I know it seems kind of rudimentary. That's 140 kids walking the hallways in a typical high school that admit to using anabolic steroids uh, in schools that if we talk to the high school coach or uh, administrator, principal, would deny that there's a problem, aren't even aware that they've got their kids using these drugs. So the, the, the problem has gotten out of hand, and uh, the, the forum was designed to, to, to point, to, to highlight that fact, and to, to begin to, to, to motivate the medical community and the federal government to provide the funding uh, to get the research and medical work done to deal with it.
1: Okay, a lot of thoughts come to mind, but one I've got to follow on something you just said a couple moments ago. Why aren't the coaches aware of this?
4: Why aren't the coaches aware of it? Boy, there's the $64,000 question. I, the uh, uh, First, they... <laughs> I got, I want to be real careful here because the last thing, and I mean this genuinely, is, is to accuse the coaches of encouraging this stuff. I'm sure there are some of them out there that are. There's always, uh, the, the rotten apple in the barrel. I think most of them are, you know, they've got a desire to win, Bob, and, and it's, you know, the last thing you want to do is think about your star athlete, uh, Having cheated in order to make it to the top of the pile, and uh, I think you know many of these coaches are naive. Uh, in, in a whole lot of cases, these are good kids. Uh, I, I think back to Taylor; uh, these are your best kids in many, many cases, and th- they, they're not suspect. Uh, you you wouldn't think some of these kids would be cheating to the make it uh, to make it to the top of the pile, but the sad truth is, a lot of them are. And unless we not just acknowledge the problem, but we go in looking for it and trying to ferret it out, uh, it's awful difficult to to get your arms around and know who's doing it. And then once you've identified a a kid that that you suspect is using performance-enhancing drugs, that begs a whole other question about what the heck do you do about it. I mean, if you accuse the kid, uh, the coach is at risk of a lawsuit from the parent, uh, the schools aren't equipped necessary to handle it. It's, it's as complicated a problem in many ways as the one I describe with the medical community.
1: Mm. Wow. This is a very complex situation. We're talking with Don Hooten on our program. Uh, Don is the chair, uh, founder and executive chair of the Taylor Hooten Foundation, and he's talking with us about this topic of anabolic steroids on our program on the fan. This morning after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program And our good friend Ed Randall is by after 9 o'clock, talking baseball here on The Fan. By the way, if you want to join us in our discussion, you know, it's a topic you would think maybe somebody listening to us would want to join in on. You can join us toll-free at 877-337-6666. That's our number here at WFAN. You know, as I'm listening to you and thinking about this, I think, well, do we need or is there... Is there an effort underfoot for um, some sort of leadership? I guess on a on a policy level. I mean, should the leadership? I, I hate to say this because we always fall back on this. Should the leadership come from government, or from some other um, example of uh, somebody who, who who actually sets policy in this in this country? I mean the other thing is what kind of support are you getting from entities like major league baseball
4: well there you you just hit the uh, you know major league baseball has has been our biggest supporter they have been uh you know they you know most of the general public's aware of the work they've done in 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 dealing with uh you know players that have been caught uh, using performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, what's gone under the radar that I'm really, really proud to talk about is the work that Major League Baseball has done in supporting organizations like us uh, that are doing the grassroots work uh, that's required to, to to deal with this problem. Uh, you know, with the youth, and uh, I, I can't say enough good things about uh, this. Started with Commissioner Seelig and. Has it's continued under the leadership of uh, Rob Manfred, just, just a great group of guys now, but you know, how how, we need to widen this thing beyond baseball. It's going to require leadership across the sports. Uh, We're, we're, we continue to work hard to try to get, uh, you know, football and and hockey and soccer and the other sports on board like baseball has been. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, you know, a lot of the sports leagues aren't necessarily excited about stepping up to uh, associate with the with the steroid problem. Oh, yeah. If you know you know what I'm saying. I understand. Uh, but but. We continue to press that, Uh, and and I am by no means, you know, I'm from Texas. I'm by no means, uh, uh, you know, looking for the federal government to lead to solve all problems. That being said, uh, this is one. Uh, They stirred the pot back in 2005 with the Major League Baseball hearings, and uh, you know, the Clemens hearings and all of the other stuff that went on during those years, and then kind of dropped the ball. Nothing has been done of substance since. And when we talk about the kind of research dollars that are going to be needed to tackle this problem at a science slash uh, med- medical level, there's only one player in the country that's big enough to help make something like that happen, and that's the federal government through the National Institute of Health. And so, so a, a big section of leadership, Bob, has got to come out of Washington. And But we're having a very difficult time making that happen, Some, you know, uh, I think some of the folks down there, at least on the politician side, think, "Well, we, you know, we dealt with the problem back in the 2000s. Well, they 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 did at least address it, or or were in the headlines for a while with the with the elite athletes, but nothing has been done. And when I say nothing, I don't mean that word in an empty way. Nothing has been done uh, to address this problem with the youth, and we are. Just to continue to beat the drums and having the opportunities to chat on a, on a program like yours just helps us to raise awareness and, and try to drive this, uh, you know, back to, you know, our congressman back into Washington, uh, to get the ball moving on this thing because it's not moving at all.
1: Don is the founder, executive director, uh, executive chair, that is, of the Taylor Houghton Foundation. Uh, He has joined us this hour of our program. And we've been talking about this uh, topic, um, trying to beat the drum on uh, this topic as well. Uh, WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666. It's brought to you by Mohegan Sun, Connecticut. One world-class destination, unlimited possibilities let's start with folks on the phone uh let's go first to where are we headed here first over to new jersey to joe in ringwood joe good morning welcome to the fan
5: hi how you doing
1: doing well thank you
5: i just wanted to talk to don about he said that the good guys of bud selig and manfred but these are the guys that really shoved under the carpet in the late 90s and made it cool for the kids now to want to do steroids and get to the next level. And I find it hard to believe that he calls them the good guys just because they're the only ones that are kind of giving money to his organization and what he says about that.
4: Well, I guess the the best testimony I can give is if there were anyone on the planet uh, that that you would expect to be being critical of the, of the leadership within baseball, it would be me. I, I lost my boy was a baseball player, and I lost my son to this. Uh, the reason I'm standing up for these guys is I've gotten to work directly with them uh, in the wake of the 2005 hearings, uh, and I, I guess we can argue and debate on what went on before those hearings in 2005 but I can give personal witness uh, to how those gentlemen uh, and and their teams have handled this situation in the years since, and they 've done the right thing uh, they 've put their not only their money where their mouth is, but they 've put the game where their mouth is. Uh, you remember sending you know commissioning uh, Senator George Mitchell to go in and do an independent investigation uh, back in those days uh, they're also here let me let me tell you about something very, very positive that 's going on right now uh, uh, under under commissioner manfred 's watch. Uh, Part of the way to deal with this problem is not just about saying bad things about performance-enhancing drugs, but it's about posting up role models to do the right thing uh, and show the kids that they can achieve their objectives the right way uh, uh, by working hard and eating right and exercising. And uh, we've been working with Major League Baseball. We created something we call the all me League, which is about sending messages to kids when you compete, either in athletics or in life, you do it all me. You do it without the use of performance-enhancing drugs. And uh, we got permission to approach players across the league to get the good guys, and I use that term again, the good guys, to step forward and stand with us. And I'm proud to tell you that within the last couple of days, we've set a record. We now have 40 players representing all 30 teams in Major League Baseball that are uh, with us. right there in New York, for example, with the Yankees, uh, Brett Gardner. and I could go on. I'm not going to go team by team, but uh, we've got, you know – some of the best players in baseball uh from around the league that are standing uh telling the kids, you know, you don't need to use performance enhancing drugs to make it to the top and that's been done uh under the leadership of Seelig and Manfred and so I dare say that uh I stand behind my statement that these are good guys and uh they are helping us deliver the right messages to kids. But for any of you that are interested in seeing Reading more about the All Me League Kung Fu, we've got a second website. It's allmeleague.com, allmeleague, one word, .com. Stop by, and I think you'll be impressed with the list of players that are standing with us on this important issue.
1: All right, thank you for your No, point. and that's – What did you say, Joe?
5: That's all well and good, and uh, I, I appreciate what they're doing now, but don't you think it's kind of Bud feeling it? I mean, Manfred now is cleaning up Bud Selig's mess. I mean, I'm 34. When I was growing up, I mean, I had Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds shoved down my throat every night, hitting home runs. Everyone knew that they were juicing. And now the Mark McGuire, the Sammy Sosas, you know, they're not getting in the Hall of Fame for that reason. Um, And I guess it's like almost like, is it too little too late?
4: Well, I hope it's not too little too late, Joe, but that's, you know, that's the battle that we're engaged in. And, you know, there was a lot more that was going on, uh, you know, amongst, uh, the you know, the players than, uh, than just the work that, uh, say, Bud Seelig was doing at the time. I think you'll remember the name Donald Fair. And uh, who was leading the uh, Players Association that uh, was was doing an outstanding job of of uh, stopping or or, or protracting uh, the, the the battle that was being waged against performance enhancing drugs with the players at the time, and so there were a lot more moving parts than just what Bud Selig or or Rob Manfred were doing in those days. And but I'm I'm proud to stand with them now.
1: Points noted. Thank you for your call this morning, Joe. Uh, Let's see. Next to Rich in Riverside, Connecticut. Rich, good morning. Welcome to the fan.
6: Good morning. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, Terrific. Uh, I I am uh, not uh, 180 degrees uh, different than that fellow who just called, but I know that the union and fair and orza, the progeny of Marvin Miller, did everything they could to block. Ish. I think you used the term "block" uh, appropriately uh, and protect the players so that they could continue the use of steroids. They did everything. The personal responsibility of the players never seems to be emphasized. I know that uh, you know there's a, a, a factor there where they say, "Well, you know, the uh, the league let them do this." But uh, if it wasn't for uh, Seelig and Manfred. Uh, I think that would still be a very rampant situation there because the union did everything they could to shout down the non steroid using players at the meetings uh, who were saying, Hey guys, this is an un- this is an unfavorable uh playing field for me. I don't use those though, and they said, shut up at the meetings uh, and I, I so I'll take sealig and I'll take Manfred any anytime over fair and orza thank you
1: thank you for your call this morning rich um Want to respond at all, Don?
4: No, I, uh, I, 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 I'm. In pretty much agreement with that, there was just there was not much uh, any commissioner could have done in those days. Uh, I, I don't think that was as visible to most people that aren't, you know, close to or inside baseball. But uh, the last caller was absolutely on point uh, in 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 pointing out that there was just a, a brick wall that was put up that that pretty much prevented uh, baseball leadership from tackling that problem head on.
1: Tell us about this uh, book that is coming out entitled Suicide Squeeze.
4: I would love to do that. Uh, A gentleman named uh, William Koshadis out of Pennsylvania, he's a a, a professor, quite a prolific writer, contacted us uh, about three years ago and was very interested in our story, as well as the story of another young man... uh, Rob Garibaldi from California, another baseball player who committed suicide after using anabolic steroids. And Bill uh, spent just, he invested just a tremendous amount of time in uh, investigating our stories and writing what is uh, just a, a very, very nice book. Uh, as you said, Suicide Squeeze. It's now out from uh, uh, Temple Press. And for, 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 for those that are listening that are interested in reading more about our story and this battle that we're engaged in against the use of these performance-enhancing drugs by our kids, uh, it's an excellent read, and as, as always, it's available on Amazon, and we very much encourage your listeners to, uh, to, to take advantage of that.
1: Now, people who are listening to our discussion today... And they fall in many different categories, including the people who work directly with young people in coaching areas and the like. Um, a lot of them listen to the program that follows ours, the Sports Edge, that Rick Wolf does after our 8 o'clock update. Um, what can we as adults do to, I guess, set an example Um and send the right message when it comes to anabolic steroids?
4: Well, the first step uh, is to recognize how serious the problem is and to open our eyes up and recognize it's not just, and, and, and I'm talking to myself now, Uh, based on our experience. You know, we we listen to programs like this and we think, oh, what a sad story, and, and it's somebody else's kids that are involved in this stuff. No, it's not necessarily somebody else's kids. It could be your kids that are, are are using this stuff. Or picking up dietary supplements that are tainted with ease. We didn't even talk about that. But it's there's just a it's so easy for these kids to get on it. So that's step one. And then recognizing that the problem is real and it's closer to home than most people are willing to admit, step forward and begin talking openly to your kids about this stuff. Uh, You know, we do a great job. We've been indoctrinated through the years to talk about alcohol and marijuana and prescription drugs, but this is a subject that has been left uh, in the closet. Uh, Eighty-five percent of our children Report that they've never had an adult, a parent, a coach, a teacher, talk with them about why they shouldn't be using appearance and performance-enhancing drugs. And if, if that's going to change, it's got to be taken at home over breakfast this morning or lunch or dinner. Uh, but begin to talk to the kids. And, and even if you don't ask your child whether or not they've been using these drugs, ask them if they've seen it at school. Do they? Are, are their kids at their they're schooled using this stuff. And some of them will be more prone to admit that their friends are doing it than that they're doing it themselves. But I I think parents will be surprised at how conversant uh, the kids are on this subject.
1: You know, you alluded to something that we didn't touch upon, and that is this situation with these dietary supplements, as you pointed out, are tainted um, with steroids. How big a problem is that? Well,
4: the, the, let's go to the bottom line because we don't have a whole lot of time to right. talk about it. Nationally, about 25% of the products, the protein shakes, the creatine, and other products that the kids are using, and not just kids, many of uh, us are taking, are spiked with real anabolic steroids. And yes, I said 25 percent of the dietary supplements are spiked with real steroids. But, Mr. Hooten, that's illegal. Yes, it's illegal, but it's being sold over-the-counter. One of the other news items that came out of our conference last week in Washington, the representatives of the military uh, reported that they had tested hundred and seventy five supplements that their soldiers are using uh... in purchasing and, and ingesting and fully forty nine point two percent of the dietary supplements that our military soldiers are taking are spiked with anabolic steroids so as big as the problem is that we reported or discussed about the kids knowingly ingesting anabolic steroids it is so much so much worse when we include the dietary supplements, that uh, they are unknowingly picking up anabolic steroids when they when they purchase them.
1: Don Hooten is the founder and executive chair of the Taylor Hooten Foundation. On the web, by the way, at Taylor Hooten Foundation, that's all with O's, as Don said earlier. Uh, there's also a site that he has urged folks listening to us to check out at AllMeLeague. That's all is one dot com. Thank you very much for being kind with your time, uh, Don. Certainly good luck with your efforts.
4: Thank you, Bob. Nice talking to you.
1: You as well. After our top of the hour update, it is Rick Wolf with the Sports Edge. And then after our 9 o'clock update, oh, kissy bear Ed Randall is in. He'll be talking baseball you know where.